So we come to Revelation 13. As promised, um, we're going to read the chapter 3. So this morning, you'll recall that we were looking at um, the dragon and the woman and her son. And, uh, and now we come to the beast out of the sea. So the dragon, we left the dragon, I think, standing on the sea this morning, or the shore of the sea. And John says, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast beast, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast. Or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. That number is 666. Apparently, if you go to Washington, D.C., one of the best tours that you can go on is the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. Doesn't sound that great. But apparently there you can learn about the process by which paper money is manufactured. And one of the tasks of the government is to spot counterfeit notes and to make counterfeiting difficult. 
Many agents of the Treasury Department spend their entire careers tracking down fake money. And on these tours, the most commonly asked question is, what's the best way to avoid receiving counterfeit bills? You can just imagine the kind of people who go on this tour. The answer is always the same. Just learn the marks of a true bill. Then you'll not have any trouble spotting the fake ones. That advice holds true for Revelation 13. In this chapter, we'll see the arrival of an unholy trinity. The dragon, the beast and the false prophet, or the second beast. This evil trio set about deceiving and destroying the world. Yet the message of Revelation 13 is this. Maintain a close relationship with Jesus, the true one, and those who are cheap imitations of him will never deceive or destroy you. Revelation 13 is composed of two major sections, each which describes a beast. Verses 1 to 10 depict the beast out of the sea, and the second set of verses are the beast of the earth. Both of them are instruments of the dragon to persecute the church and to deceive an unbelieving world. In these two sections, God gives us precautions to hold true, that hold true throughout the ages. The first beast is said to have ten horns on its head uh, and seven heads. And on its horns were seven, ten diadems even, and on the heads were blasphemous names. This beast might refer to an end time kingdom, the empire, or to the dictator, or both. The ten horns are the ten future kings who will rule over ten nations. And the seven heads are the historic Gentile kingdoms, which are represented by seven kings or rulers. These Gentile powers or nations find their culmination in the beast. The ten horns look at the future history of the beast, while the seven heads look at the past. The ten diadems are symbols of governmental authority. The diadems are placed on the horns rather than on the heads of the beast, to represent that that power will be taken by a brute force rather than anything else. And the blasphemous names, well, they represent the claim to authority, um, the opposition to God. The beast is evidently the Antichrist, who is the head of a future empire. And if you're following that so far, then great. But in Revelation 13, verse 2, John describes the beast. He says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Back in Daniel, these three animals represented the kingdoms that had previously ruled the world. The fourth kingdom that Daniel describes includes the Antichrist's kingdom. This beast is a combination of all of the beasts or empires throughout human history that have gone against God and his people. And John continues to say, And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. The beast will derive his power and position from the devil. Instead of being spirit-filled, he's filled with evil. And this is a powerful reminder of the devil's control. Many people pursue power or pleasure or possessions and don't think about the consequences. Instead of pursuing God, they pursue things that are inherently evil. And in Revelation 13, 3-4, John continues... I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, 
saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Most likely the beast is killed and brought back to life, but we're not told how. But it's interesting because Jesus is killed and raised from the dead and the world refused to believe that. But this beast rises and the whole world is amazed and the whole world forms a church to worship him. The beast not only rules, but the beast is also idolised. And during the tribulation, it becomes clear that there are two types of worshippers, those who worship the beast and those who worship the lamb. And this is also true today. Though we have a multitude of religions, the devil desires all religions to worship him. Later, the lamb will prove superior to the beast. But during the period of tribulation, which is the time that we're in, the beast reigns. But it becomes clear that the beast can't do a single thing without the permission of God. The beast poured forth blasphemies against God, his name and those who are in heaven. But he only has authority to act for 42 months. And we heard about that this morning too. God limits the extent of evil and it's for a limited period of time. It's not going to go on forever. God is ultimately in control and it's really important that we remember that and we trust in God's power. No other ruler has ever been able to rule the whole of the world. But we see that the entire world will worship the Antichrist. And you know, that's the devil's ultimate goal, to be worshipped as God. But John reminds us that although God has permitted evil, from the beginning he planned an ultimate remedy uh, for overcoming that evil. And that, of course, was the sacrificial death of his son. Jesus was not only slain in the first century, but from eternity in terms of God's eternal plan. We are secure in Christ. And it's that security which should compel us to live for him. It's that security in him that should give us confidence. We have a hope and a future and it's that that we need to focus on. God is still in control, even during this time of great authority for the dragon. So that's the first beast, the Antichrist who will get the whole world worshipping him. And then there's a second one. This beast will be referred, later, uh, referred to later in Revelation as a false prophet. And our passage tonight makes it clear why he's given that title. The false prophet takes on more of a supporting role. Rather than the direct attention to himself, his actions are intended to get people to worship the first beast, the Antichrist. The false prophet relies upon the fact that man is hardwired with a need to worship something or someone. And he works behind the scenes to encourage people to direct their worship to the Antichrist. This unholy trinity that I already mentioned of the dragon and the two beasts is undoubtedly intended to be a counterfeit of the triune God. Just as Jesus received authority from his father, the beast from the sea, the Antichrist, receives authority from the dragon or the devil. And in much the same manner that the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus, this false prophet glorifies the Antichrist. Not surprisingly, the method that this false prophet employs, again, is that of deception. And that deception begins with his appearance. On the outside, he looks like a gentle lamb, obviously trying to Im imitate Jesus, who is also described as a lamb. But whilst he may look like a lamb, he speaks like a dragon. 
In Matthew 7, 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And in Matthew 24, 24, we read, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Since the devil has operated by deception right the way back to Genesis and the Garden of Eden, we shouldn't be surprised that his followers will operate in that same manner. And we certainly have plenty of historical examples of those who have come to power through deception. But what's really scary to see is that even those who are claiming to be Christians will be taken in by the deception of the false prophet. The kind of deception that we see is so subtle and so gradual that people don't even notice it when it happens. The truth isn't completely contradicted. It's just little gradual twists in it time after time until eventually we're so far from the truth that it's difficult to know where we went wrong and how to get back. In this passage, God reveals how the false prophet is going to accomplish this deception and one way is through signs. The false prophet will be able to perform great signs. He counterfeits what Elijah did when he called down fire from heaven. He creates an image of the Antichrist that and, and it and enables that image to speak and to be able to kill followers of Jesus who refuse to worship that image. It's not hard to imagine why people will follow someone who can perform signs and wonders. It's not the first time that we've been warned of this potential to be deceived by signs. But the thing that perhaps stands out in Revelation 13 is the whole business about the mark of the beast. So what is that about? On a basic level, a mark is something which identifies who you belong to. It's a sign, in this instance, of who you worship. And in this instance, it's on someone's hand or on their forehead. The theory is that the hand symbolises something that you do. It symbolises action because you use your hands to do things. The devil wants us to do things that dishonour God, whether we're doing it knowingly or not. And the forehead represents our minds and the decisions we make to do right or wrong. And of course, the devil wants us to make wrong decisions. God, on the other hand, wants us to believe and to do his will. He wants all of us, our thoughts, our minds, our actions. So the mark of the beast is the opposite to the seal or the mark of God. The seal of God is the Holy Spirit working in our lives, leading us to truth. The mark of the beast is a devil working in us to stop us from doing that. And you know, there have been countless attempts throughout history um, for people trying to identify the Antichrist and who the Antichrist is. In ancient times, letters of the alphabet served as numbers. For instance, most of us are familiar with Roman numerals, um, which we have letters that designate numbers. Uh, I is 1, V is 5, X is 10, and so on. can't remember the rest, actually. But using the Greek system of numbering, various commentators have attempted to identify who the Antichrist is by um, converting the names of their favourite suspects and trying to make it add up to 666. Those who have been identified as the Antichrist using that method include Caesar Nero, Adolf Hitler, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan and Prince Charles, among others. As you can see, it's a bit of a subjective approach. And I reckon we could probably twist anyone's name to fit that 666. 
But if we stand back and look at the bigger picture here, we know that number six in the Bible is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. The number six is also a picture of the sinfulness of man since six falls short of the number seven. Number seven, we see throughout Revelation to represent God because number seven is the perfect number. God created the world in seven days and six is when man was created. We've seen the Holy Spirit pictured as the seven spirits of God and Jesus pictured as a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. So while it's possible that when the Antichrist comes on the scene, the letters of his name might add up to 666, the bigger picture is that the number six is the number of man. And that number 666 represents that idea raised to the third power, so to speak. For example, when God is praised as holy, 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 we're emphasising that characteristic. As one commentator put it, it represents failure upon failure upon failure. And people have talked about what this mark of the beast is going to look like, but we just can't be sure, so there's no point speculating. All we know is that this counterfeit, this is another counterfeit of the devil, intended to imitate the seal on the foreheads of the 144,000 that we saw back in Revelation 7. And whatever that mark is, it's going to be required to do anything, to trade, to buy, to sell. So Christians who want to provide for their family are in a difficult situation if they want to remain faithful to Jesus. It's been said that nominal Christians do not surrender their lives for a cause in which they don't really believe. But why does that matter to us? Because as far as I'm aware, the Antichrist is not on the scene already. And chances of him appearing during our lifetimes, who knows? It might happen, it might not. But the spirit of the Antichrist is present in the world already. And that means that the devil is operating right now in the same way that will become more evident in the future, through deception. So we need to be able to be ready to counter that deception And how do we do that? We do that by developing wisdom. The first thing we need to do is absorb the authentic. Think about what is the genuine article rather than focusing on the fake. I think it was earlier this year I saw a documentary, not documentary, a reality TV thing, um, where people were auditioning for a role as an Adele impersonator. So you had all these people singing Adele songs and then... They all sat down and watched everyone else audition. And finally, um, Adele was there and Adele was singing. And it didn't take long for these Adele impersonators to recognise that that was the real Adele who was singing. And it didn't take long for them to recognise the real thing. Think back to the illustration I used at the start about how to spot fake money. The trick to spotting a fake is not to study a fake, but by being so familiar with the genuine article that you can immediately spot anything that doesn't fit in and doesn't match up. That's the kind of wisdom that we need to develop that will counter deception. We learn to detect a fake by being so familiar with the real thing that the fake stands out a mile. So how do we develop that kind of wisdom? By fearing God and by growing in our knowledge and understanding of him. We need to get to know God so intimately that when some kind of deception comes into our lives, we immediately recognise 
that it doesn't conform to what we already know about God. It's true that we need at least some degree of understanding about the devil and his ways. So passages like this are helpful in telling us what to look out for and the methods and weapons that he'll use. But ultimately, we'll be much more likely to avoid being deceived if we spend our time and effort in the presence of Jesus, getting to know him through reading our Bible, through praying, through just spending time with him. And the second thing we need to do is treasure the truth rather than just look out for what is pleasant. Nobody likes pain, and most of us do whatever we can to avoid it. And this is taken full advantage of. We see that the Antichrist and the false prophet, they come to power by offering people an alternative to pain, be it physical, economic, or emotional. Holding to the truth is not a popular thing in our culture. And that's exactly the situation that Paul wrote about in 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. He said, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The truth is not always going to be pleasant or painless. In fact, the truth of God's word often reveals some things in our lives that we need to deal with. But we've seen throughout Revelation that sticking firm to the truth isn't easy. It certainly won't prevent pain or death. But Jesus made it very clear that holding on to the truth is evidence that we're genuine disciples. So if we want to develop a wisdom that will stand against deception, then we need to treasure the truth and look out for the truth rather than just going for the easy option. And finally, we need to understand the unseen rather than just give in to what we can see. We're very visually oriented society And we're influenced by the things we can see. Bit of a random example, but I've got a niece who lives in Canada. And she came over when she was quite young. And my sister took her to Argos. And she just couldn't get her head around this concept that you can't see the stuff. You've just got to look in a book and then you can get the stuff. She didn't understand why they hid it all out back. You see, we need to often be able to see things to understand them. The world will be deceived by things they can see because a false prophet can perform all sorts of signs and wonders. Because we are so visually oriented, problems arise when there's a conflict between what we can see and what we know to be true. The same thing is true in our spiritual lives. The devil is capable of manipulating our circumstances and the things we can see for the purpose of drawing us away from the truth and for deceiving us. So we have a choice to make. Will we live our lives based on what we can see and end up being deceived? Or will we develop a wisdom that will allow us to hold to the truth even though we can't always see it with our physical eyes? We are in a spiritual battle. We need to develop wisdom. We need to understand the unseen and not be swayed by signs and wonders as great as they may be. We need to treasure the truth. The truth isn't always what we want to hear but always what we need to hear. If we're serious about developing wisdom, then truth rather than what's pleasant is exactly what we need. And we need to absorb the authentic. Let's become so close to God, so in tune with him, that we will spot the fake a mile off. Let's spend time reading the Bible. Let's spend time in prayer. And not just when things are difficult, but through all times. 
Let's develop our relationship with God so that we know him more and more and we won't be taken in by someone trying to imitate him. And let's finally, let's open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit. Let's allow him to fill us and to work in our lives. And let's not accept anything less than that. Let's spend our time with God, focusing on him and just growing closer and closer to him. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that we can come to you and you are always there. We thank you that you care about every one of us and we thank you that you want to get to know us and want us to get to know you even more. Lord, we ask that you will speak to us now. Lord, help us think about the things that come between us and you and help us to put those things aside. Amen.